Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. This passage will lead us in a study of loving each other as the body of Christ here at Westchester. You know, we need to learn from history. Um, in the, the, during the early church era, in the period immediately following that era, there was on the part of Christians an exuberant caring for each other and sharing their possessions with each other that was obvious and notable. So much so that Julian, who was an enemy of Christianity, had to admit this. And he wrote... The godless Galileans, that was his phrase for Christians, the godless Galileans fed not only their poor, but ours also. And Tertullian, who was an early church father and a defender of the faith, my favorite quote of Tertullian is this, that when he, when he wrote, truth engenders hatred of truth. As soon as it appears... It is the enemy. Let me read that again. That's my favorite quote of Tertullian. Truth engenders hatred of truth. As soon as it appears, it is the enemy. Where Tertullian also wrote of their time, he wrote this. The Christians' deeds of love were so notable that the pagan world confessed in astonishment, see how they love one another. See how they love one another. And all of that, in those early periods of the church, all of that emerges out of the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus taught this in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, we've heard those verses a lot, haven't we? Maybe they've become a little too familiar to us. That people will know that we are Christ's disciples, that we are Jesus' followers by the way that we love each other. Have we just gotten so used to that that it's really quite startling? And what, to me, what's most impressive about it is what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say that people will know that you are my followers by your holiness. He didn't say that. He didn't say by your deep biblical knowledge. That's how people will know that you are my disciples. Even though we're going to see knowledge is important. That isn't what Jesus said. Nor did he say, by, by your careful theology, people will know that you are my disciples. No, Jesus said, by the way that you love each other. Some have thought that we have, have misplaced this and have called love the forgotten Christian apologetic. You know, what are apologetics? Apologetics are the the public case for truth. Apologetics are arguments against error and false doctrine. Apologetics are testimony or proof of personal faith. And have we forgotten 
that love is that Christian apologetic? Well, this passage, as we continue in our study of Philippians, this passage, Philippians 1, verses 7 through 11, will challenge us in how we are to love each other. Would you follow along as I read? And as I do, would you please note that in verses 7 and 8, Paul expresses his affection for them. And then in verses 9 through 11, Paul outlines his prayer for them. Please follow along as I read. Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. Paul wrote, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Would you pray with me as we we look at this passage of Scripture? Lord, we want to come to your word and, and we want to listen to your word today. Lord, we want it to impact us. Father, by your spirit, would you teach us? Lord, may your word um, have its way in our lives. And Father, as you call us to, to love each other from this passage of scripture, Lord, help us to hear, help us to obey. Lord, do your work in us, in Christ's name, amen. So first of all, in verses seven through eight, Paul expresses his affection for them. Paul expresses his love for the church in Philippi. And please note as we look at these verses here that Paul is modeling for us Christian affection. Paul is modeling brotherly love. And he's saying, here's what it can look like. Here's what it looks like when we love each other. Paul begins in verse 7 with, it's right for me to feel this way about you. And what is that that phrase, this way? What does that refer to? Well, it refers to the verses before it that Pastor Chuck taught last week. When it said that Paul was joyfully thankful for them. Uh, He was prayerful for them. He was grateful for their partnership. He was confident that God was going to continue his work in them. And he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. And then Paul uses two expressions that convey his feelings for them. The first one is in verse 7, and it's the phrase, I hold you in my heart. I hold you in my heart. You know, the heart is often considered the the seed of emotions. And Paul, though he was separated from them, he was still fondly connected to them and And closely tied to them. He was miles and miles away in prison, but he still held them in his heart. They were in his thoughts, they were in his prayers. And it wasn't just Paul, this was mutual. He felt this way about them, and they expressed their love for him by their partnership. And we see it here in verse 7 they were partakers of grace, first in his imprisonment. 
And secondly, in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But Paul saw his imprisonment as grace. And, And you know, do we ever do that? I know none of you are in prison right now. But maybe you sometimes feel like the circumstances of your life feel like a prison. Or maybe the way life has unfolded or the relationships that are around you or whatever can feel like this confining and this imprisonment. But Paul was confident, and so can we, that that, that God is always at work. So much so that Paul could look at his imprisonment as, as grace, God's grace in his life. And then it's interesting, they were partakers of this grace. First in his imprisonment, And then the defense of the gospel, first in the bad and difficult circumstances of his life, and also in the good and pleasant ones, the bad, the imprisonment, the good, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They were partakers. They shared together in the the physical circumstances of his life that he was in prison, and also in the spiritual circumstances of his life that the, the gospel was being defended and confirmed. They did this together. This was a mutual affection. And we see some of the Philippians' actions over in chapter 4. With verse 14, it says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Paul is writing of them. And he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs. Once and again, we see this mutual partnership, this affection. Well, some might say when you look at this and study these verses, that Paul felt this way just about the Philippians, just about the church in Philippi. Well, that, that was his favorite church, or they were the perfect church, and so Paul could feel this way about them. You know, The Philippian church wasn't perfect. As we get to chapter 4, we're going to see how there was a division in that church. There were two ladies, Yodia and Sintichi, who couldn't agree. And Paul says, help these ladies agree because because it was causing this division. They weren't a perfect church. But Paul had this affection for them. Or if you want to look at it this way, the church in Corinth certainly wasn't a perfect church. The church in Corinth had many issues. There was division there, too. There was immorality immorality within the church. There were troubles. There were lawsuits taking place. Christians were suing each other. There was disorderly worship and selfishness at mealtime. And Paul concludes this corrective letter, the corrective letter of 1 Corinthians. He concludes it with this phrase, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So Corinth, with all of its issues, Paul had this affection for them as well. He holds them in his heart. The second phrase that Paul uses in verse 8 is he uses, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is modeling church affection. Paul loved them with the affection of Jesus. 
And I believe this is calling us to love each other with the affection of Jesus. Well, the question that begs itself when we read the affection, well, how did Jesus love? Well, when we read all of Scripture, but when we read particularly the New Testament, we see that Jesus loved with a sacrificial love, with an agape love. We look look at the cross, and we see the extent of his love, so divine, so amazing, that Jesus would give himself and sacrifice himself for the church. As it says in Ephesians 5, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it's not just the cross. When we study the Gospels, Jesus would come across people and over and over he would say he would see the crowds and he would have compassion on them. Or in John 11, when, when the story of Lazarus, his friend, when he had died, and Jesus comes to the place where he was, and that short verse, Jesus wept. And the next verse, it says that the Jews said about Jesus, see how he loved him? Paul loved the church in Philippi with the affection of Christ Jesus. Richard Sibbs has said, the ambassadors of so gentle a Savior should not be overbearing. Can I change that quote a little bit? The ambassadors of so loving a Savior should not be unloving. Or to turn that into the positive, the ambassadors of so loving a Savior must be loving. Paul uses these phrases. I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And when we consider how Paul loved, all we can say is, look what the gospel does in a person. Look what Jesus had done in Paul's life by grace. Because if you think of Paul's story, Paul, before he became a Christian, was named Saul. And Saul hated the church. Saul brought pain and torture and death upon the church. And then Jesus enters into his life and grace takes hold of him. And look at what the gospel does. It changed him completely. He hated the church and now he loved the church. And it's often overlooked when we look at Paul. What was Paul known for? Paul was known for his towering intellect. He was this brilliant teacher, a prolific writer, a fearsome defender of the faith, and a theologian beyond rival. Paul was all of that. And he also was a man of deep affection. Well, how can those two things, how can those kind of characteristics go together? Well, that's what the great grace of God does. And some of us might say, well, you know, I'm just not wired to be affectionate. You know, I'm just not wired to be loving. My gifts are in other areas. And this is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel will do in our lives. It will give us this affection for each other. 
this mutual love that we can express and know with each other. Look what the grace of Jesus does. Look at what the Spirit will do when the Spirit enters into us and brings his fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit. And the very first one is love. This is what the Spirit does in the lives of Christians. Well, I hope you're asking, like I'm asking myself as I have studied this and as I've written my, this sermon, is how can I know if I love the people of God like this? And what will it look like today? You know, we have to, well, I, I kind of like some of the people at church. <laughs> how do I love, how do I love like this? Uh, and we think, I want it to be said of Westchester that anybody that happens to see what's going on inside these walls or inside the, the ministry of this body of Christ, when people look in, they go, wow, see how they love each other. So I want the people to live over there and all the people over at the schools, all the folks, if they happen to see that they would be startled, you got to admit, look at how they love each other. I'm sure you're like me. I I desire to display this forgotten apologetic. Do you have those questions? I have those questions of myself. I'm going to ask that you just kind of hold on to those questions. Let's let the rest of this passage of Scripture build even more. And then I'd like to address that longing in my conclusion today. First of all, in verses 7 and 8, Paul expresses his affection for them. Secondly, in the verses 9 through 11, Paul outlines his prayer for them. And if these first two verses, he modeled Christian affection. In these verses, Paul models prayer for us. I like what Paul does here. It is very convicting to me. Paul doesn't just say, I'll pray for you. He tells them what he's praying for them. And I think for all of us, that's a great exhortation. How many times have we just said, well, I'm praying for you. Wouldn't it be more significant to be like Paul here? He models prayer for us. He tells them what they are praying, what he is praying for them. As we look at this prayer, first of all, we see in verse 9 an overabundant request. Verse 9 says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. An overabundant request. Now, verse 9 in this love that he could, could refer to our love for God, that it would abound more and more, and our love for people, that it would abound more and more. I think both are, are, are fine applications, and, but I'm going to focus on the love for people this morning that our love may abound more and more. This says to us that we've, we, we as a church will never arrive at the ultimate level of love. There's always more. And I think you know, and Chuck expressed it last week, I would agree, I'm so grateful 
for how Westchester loves each other. It's obvious. It is the result of grace, and it is full of grace, and it is special, and it is honoring to God. But like Paul said, there's more. Can we abound more and more in this love? Can we keep growing in it? Abound in the Greek that's like a a river that's overflowing its banks. And it's just spilling out that our love here at Westchester for each other would keep growing. That would never fade. That it would always be growing, including more people. Deeper levels of serving and caring. Paul says that there, this over, overabundant request that their love would abound. And he says, with knowledge and all discernment. Abounding love with knowledge. And knowledge, when we study knowledge in the New Testament, this Greek word, it's used often in the New Testament. It always refers to religious knowledge. It refers to spiritual knowledge. So it's knowledge of God, knowledge of his ways and his laws and his character. If we do refer back to this love, abounding love for God, we can say that, oh, I love God. I just love God. Well, that can be just so nebulous. When we dig into the scriptures and we learn the knowledge of what the scriptures teach us about God, we can say, I love God because he first loved me and I can love him back. I love God because he's sovereign and his plan is perfect. I love God because I read it in scriptures that he's merciful and he's full of grace. And I can, my love for God is directed by my knowledge that comes out of scripture. And same with our love for each other. It is to be directed by scripture. You say, oh, I love, you. I love all of you and I just have this big heart for all of you. And scripture can direct us how that love is to be expressed. And scripture says, not just with words but with deeds, right? The scripture says that when someone asks for a coat, well, you give them your tunic as well. So it's like sacrificial. It's overabundant kind of love. The scriptures tell us to be, to be loving sacrificially and generously and patiently. The scriptures tell us that we are to be loving of each other without playing favorites, without favoritism. That our love would abound and it would be directed by this knowledge. And he says, with knowledge and all discernment. And discernment is the application of knowledge. Knowing when and how to apply, how to live out the knowledge that we have. That comes from scripture. So the world would claim that, that love is blind. That all you need is love. And Paul would teach that our love should be abounding and our love should be with knowledge and all discernment. And the Bible gives us an example. It's a negative one. It's in the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 5, it tells us about that they, they included in their fellowship. They welcomed a man. They loved a man so much so that they included him in the fellowship, a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. 
And when Paul caught wind of that, he said, no, 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 that shouldn't be. That's something that even the unbelievers would never do. Instead, Paul said, the loving thing was to put him out of the fellowship so that his soul might be saved. Loving with knowledge and with truth. And today, we need help in how to love. And we must use scripture to guide us. We must use the discernment that comes from the spirit to lead us in our love. Can I repeat those phrases again just a little differently? With all the ethical and moral issues of our day, and we know them, They're complicated, and they're confusing, and they're difficult. We need help. And God has given us his word to direct us. And he's promised wisdom to those who ask for it, that we might have discernment in how to apply this love for each other within the body of Christ. I say abounding love must not rob us of our right judgment. I'm reading devotionally of John Newton, who lived in the 1700s. He's the man who wrote Amazing Grace. And listen to John Newton talk about this. He said, when our love to the Lord and our love for each other is in lively exercise, and the rule of his word is in our eyes and minds, We seldom make great mistakes. I kind of think that's a little humorous. If we're loving each other, it's lively exercise and we're using, we seldom make great mistakes. I think um, John Newton is saying in his days, in the 1700s, it was complicated. That phrase, he's, he's admitting that he didn't, they didn't make mistakes. And within the body of Christ, we are going to make mistakes in how to apply this love and to do it with knowledge and discernment. And once more, I stand before you as a pastor of this church, and and I I want to apologize for the times when we we made mistakes of how to apply love. Because we're not perfect. And we live in this fallen world, and the issues are so complicated today. But God has given us his word and his command to love, and his word to give us knowledge, and his spirit to help us apply that with discernment. Secondly, in this great prayer, Paul, he talks about overlapping results in verses 10 through 11, the first part of 11. (coughs) Listen as I read 10 through 11 here. So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. These verses are, these verses deserve a whole series of sermons. These verses describe the the Christian life to us. Here's what the gospel will produce in us. Look look at from these verses what God has planned for his people. First of all, that through, through grace, we'd have this ability to approve what is excellent. In other words, to have right priorities, to have the ability to to make right choices. 
And at the moral crossroads of life, the ethical, the theological crossroads of life, where, where love is to be applied and, and where, where, where all of that is unfolding by his grace in our lives, we might have the wisdom and discernment to approve what is excellent. And then he says that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Again, look only through the gospel. Can this be true? Pure and blameless has to do with being sincere and found faithful, free from guilt and free from that remorse of, of all these wrongs. And that because of the gospel, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This day of Christ, this is the second time in this, the gospel, Philippians already, where, where Paul has used this phrase, the, the return of Christ, the day of Christ. First time he did it was in verse 6 last week. Are we interested? Are we excited about the, the day of Christ? Is it one of those things that you know, we're living for and we're living in light of? If you are struggling with that, if, if maybe when you think of the return of Christ, you, you know, you're just not interested. You know, uh, being ready is a, is a heart issue. And John Owen has written this, being earthly-minded makes us immune to the return of Jesus. Oh, that the gospel would take root in us, right? And give us a spiritual mind, hungry for the things of God. Pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And the last one is filled with the fruits of, fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that? This can we be referring to the, the righteousness that Christ brings to us as his righteousness is imputed into us and when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness and us becoming Christ-like over time. Or it could also be referring to the fruit that comes from that, the peace and the deep joy the communion with God that comes when Christ's righteousness is reigning in our lives. Overlapping results. And then lastly, he mentions an overriding reason in verse, uh, the last part of verse 11 is to the glory and praise of God. Uh, this isn't to make ourselves look good. This is to bring praise and glory to God. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Paul models prayer for us here. He prays that their love would abound. And can I say this again a little differently? I, I think it's significant what he didn't pray for them. He didn't pray that they would be the largest and most influential church in Asia Minor. He prayed that their love would abound more and more. He doesn't pray that they would be theological giants able to confound and confront and persuade the lost. He doesn't pray for that. He prays that their love would abound more and more. Because Paul knows, and he wrote it. He wrote that they, they could have... Uh, this great ability to speak, speak the tongues of angels and tongues of men. But if they don't have love, they're nothing. 
They could be people that are prophetic and they, they understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith. But without love, he knows that they would be nothing. And as all of this is said in 1 Corinthians 13, they could be martyrs. They could give up their lives. But if they do that without love, it amounts to nothing. No, so what Paul prays for them is that their love would abound more and more. So here's my conclusion. On my sabbatical a little while back, I read the book, The Bruised Reed by uh, Richard Sibbs. And the title and the book it comes from uh, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3, where Isaiah talks that God does not give up on the bruised reed or the smoking flax. God doesn't give up on those. And those really are images of God's people. And that God doesn't give up on the bruised reed or the smoking, the smoldering flax close to the fire, from the fire. God doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't give up on God's people, though we are sinful and broken and needy. And in the book, he writes this interesting phrase. He writes, The Holy Spirit is content to dwell in smoky and offensive souls. I just think that's... You know, when God the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us and it's put to our account. But we all know it. That as we're living in this life now... Before Jesus returns, we know this wrestling that we have inside of us and outside of us, this wrestling with sin and the devil and the world and the temptations are there and we're sinful and we long for the day when all of that will be made right. But until that day, we wrestle with things, we fall, we fail and yet the Holy Spirit dwells within us and the Holy Spirit is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. Oh, that God's Spirit would breathe into our spirits and give us that same merciful and loving disposition for each other. No, we're not perfect. I'm not, we're not. Yes, of course, we struggle and we're fallen. But yet, we can love each other. So I ask those questions. How can I know if I'm loving God's people as he wants to me, wants me to? Uh, what will that look like? Well, just in my concluding thoughts, I'd like to take us to a passage that we do not usually apply to the love we should have for each other as a church. It's 1 Corinthians 13. Right? I use it at weddings. I use it in how husbands and wives are to love each other. But you know, it's really doing a disservice to this passage of Scripture. This is what love is to look like. And this is part of the, this knowledge of how we can love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So would you just follow along and as I listen? Listen again, maybe just listen a little differently to these phrases. This isn't how husbands and wives are supposed to love each other. 
This is how brothers and sisters in Christ are to love each other. The love at Westchester is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. The love at Westchester does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. The love at Westchester, it hopes all things. And the love that the Westchester folks have for each other, it endures all things. Oh, that God would build this more and more in us. That this love would abound. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the deep challenge that's here. Lord, I ask that by your Spirit you would help us apply this and live it out. Uh, Lord, I thank you so much for this church. Lord, I do thank you for the love that is here by your gospel and by your grace. Lord, would you just cause it to abound more and more. Lord, give us knowledge from your word. Lord, lead us into all discernment. And may we bring glory to you. In Christ's name, amen.